2: Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, SolidarityBreakfast.org.au
1: Solidarity forever!
3: Good morning, listeners. Good morning. Yes, this is Annie and... Me. Kim. (laughs) We're here this morning for Solidarity Breakfast. It's a lovely day outside. It's been raining over this week in Melbourne, which has been delightful. Apparently... Melbourne is the only place where people like to talk about the weather all really? the time. I don't know, but uh, apparently. I remember doing a writing course and uh, there were Singaporean people, etc., from world world people on this net course. And uh, the Singaporean wrote, why do you Australians keep talking about the weather?
2: <laughs> well, that's the thing that I noticed when I went to Bangladesh was that the weather was the same every day.
3: Oh, right. Well, maybe that's why. Maybe that's that, why. <laughs> maybe that's right. I always figured that we know that uh, uh, you can die; weather can kill you, and we're we're uh, deeply interested in
2: <laughs> even in Melbourne, <laughs> even in
3: Melbourne. But anyway, we've got a stacked program today. Uh, it's uh, the first uh, cab off the rank is going to be a uh, piece, a, a talk, a part of a talk that uh, uh, Corey Peterson Smith uh, gave at uh, the. Uh, recent, uh, uh, conference. Marxism, Marxism 2016. 2016? Yeah, that's right. And it's about Black Lives Matter. He gives a really interesting analysis of Black Lives Matter and what's going on in, in its, uh, uh various incarnations and its effect on, uh, the presidential, uh, primaries that are going on at the moment. Everyone is in a lather. I don't know why we're in a lather, but apparently, Oh, well, there's a, a battle, a big battle going on between uh, left and right, apparently.
2: The amount of coverage that Australia is giving to Trump is, apparently it's almost as much as they are in the US. It's pretty outrageous, really.
3: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? The, uh, the, the, it's curious how the mainstream media likes to play with uh, the uh, future of the planet. Really,
2: <laughs> Maybe the Liberal Party like the idea that we can see a party that seems more right-wing than them. Well, in that uh, interview that Jerome
3: Small just gave on Stick Together, the attack on public school system where uh, various types want to steal the amounts of money that are actually given over to the public uh, schooling education uh, in America it, it very similar to what Turnbull was uh, putting forward. So obviously they go to dinner together.
2: Yes, Yeah. those $300,000 dinners. Yeah, that's right. And anyway, after that, we're going to have a chat about the
3: Panama Papers, which is always worth delving into. We've got, uh, this is the uh, week that was. And of course, we have, uh, after that, we're going to be talking to Anthony Lowenstein, who uh, wrote uh, Disaster Capitalism. And he's going off to uh, Hot Docs to uh, try and garner support for his next project, which is to take disaster capitalism into the film world. He's making a documentary called Disaster Capitalism. Anyway, so you'll hear more about that later on on this Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. We are also podcast.
0: Come and join Melbourne's top musicians as they showed their support for human rights. The concert, Fearless Music... Features political, protest and freedom songs written by the world's best fearless songwriters. Singers include Ross Wilson, Stephen Cummings, Cash Savage, Liz Stringer, Mark Seymour, Jane Clifton, Rob Snarski, Sean Kelly and Lisa Miller. Fearless Music, Sunday May the 8th at 3pm at the Mimo Music Hall in St Kilda. Book tickets now at memomusichall.com.au. Sponsored by Liberty Victoria. A 3CR
3: supporter
0: I'll have to say that that
3: sounds like a fantastic concert. <laughs> fearless concert fearless music. Um, I'd love to, I'm going to go along. Uh, the uh, first uh, part of this uh, little uh, part of the talk that uh, Curry, Peterson Smith gave, uh, we're going to uh, we'll go directly to it. Uh, he's a fantastic fellow, isn't he, Kim?
2: Yeah, he's absolutely adorable if you, if you meet him. He's also a um, campaigner for Palestine and many other things as well as Black Lives Matter. Yeah, so let's go
4: straight ahead. I don't know if, if people here know that when Trump was shut down in Chicago by a mobilisation of thousands of people, when he then cancelled the rally because he knew that if he'd already lost that he also canceled the next two rallies in Florida and Ohio as well, actually. Okay. So I, I bring that up for a number of reasons. Uh, but, but one is, is as by way of introducing the Black Lives Matter movement, because what happened in Chicago actually has so much to do with the movement for black lives. It comes just months after... Uh, a mobilization in Chicago, this outpouring of resistance in response to the release of a video that depicts the uh, the execution-style murder of an unarmed black teenager named Laquan McDonald. Laquan was 17 years old. He was shot 16 times. The video, the whole thing was captured on video. The video shows the cop shooting Laquan his body whirling around, the cop continuing to shoot him, and when he falls to the ground, the cop continues to shoot. What outraged people in Chicago was not only this vicious murder, but the fact that the police department, the city hall, and other other institutions of government worked together for a year to suppress the video. They covered it up. They were forced to release the video, and when it was released, there was this outpouring of protests in Chicago. Now, that's significant for so many reasons. Um, when the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement really launched uh, in the fall of 2014, there were these huge protests around the country. It was, um, you know, you all probably know the name uh, uh, Eric Garner a black man who was strangled to death on the streets of Staten Island in New York City by the NYPD, and I'm sure you know the name of Michael Brown, the black man who was murdered in Ferguson, Missouri, and uh, and of course Ferguson rose up in rebellion in response to that, and months after that, the cops who killed both Eric and Michael were not acquitted, and those decisions were released at the same time, in the same week. And when they were released, 126 cities in the United States had, had protests, massive protests. Where I live in Boston, uh, we had this protest. You know, We had an initial protest when the first non-indictment came. And then the second one came, and I thought, oh, man, I wonder if people would be discouraged. But we had a much bigger protest. 10,000 people mobilized uh, downtown. And it was so big that nobody was in control of it. The cops weren't in control, and the activists weren't in control either. It was like thousands of people would gather, and then when there was enough us, we would just go march and shut down part of the city. And then thousands more would gather, and then they would, get, they would shut down part of the city, or whatever. And I was like, I remember talking to a friend afterward. And she um, and, uh, you know, said, so we had the program? And said, yeah, it was great. She said, oh yeah, it was great. We shut down Chinatown. I was like, Chinatown? We didn't know anywhere near Chinatown. I was like, oh, we didn't. You know? So I, I didn't even know what, what got shut down, right? So, so 10,000 people in Boston. Chicago is a much bigger city than Boston. It has a much larger black population. Chicago, the county that Chicago is in, is the, the largest black population of any county in the United States. And yet, during those first few months of the, the first wave of protests, the protests in Chicago never really got beyond a few hundred. So now, for after, after the release of this footage of the murder of Laquan McDonald, for thousands of people to mobilize, was incredibly significant. There was a breakthrough in Chicago. And the, the footage, the video was released um, in November. We have, um, we have this holiday in the United States called Thanksgiving. It's, it's, a, um, it's a family gathering to celebrate, you know the genocide against the indigenous population. That's not how people, anyway, you, you, know I mean. you know what I mean. So, so it is, it's, the, the, it's the holiday in the US that the most people gather for. Um, and Thanksgiving is the biggest travel week in, in the year, in, in the United States. Um, maybe it's not a coincidence that the video was released that very week, right? And I wonder, will Thanksgiving get in the way of the protests and not only did they not give of the protest, not only did the protests happen anyway, but the day after Thanksgiving in the United States is this thing called Black Friday, which is the biggest shopping day of the year. It's when all of the sales happen and, you know, all of the corporate media gets so excited, oh, Black Friday, there's going to be so many sales, we're going to make so much profit, they're, they're really open about the whole thing. And in Chicago, the shopping district was shut down because that was when people mobilized. Um, to, to, to shut it down And in fact, I, I, um, I have a friend in Chicago Who told me that for weeks In November and in December in the, in the morning news in Chicago When they were talking about what the weather would be like And the traffic report and so on They would also say, by the way, there are protests in this part of the city So avoid that And every day they would say where the protests were um, Which of course told certain people to avoid And then other people where to go <laughs> Also So um, That happened in Chicago and uh, it's, it's totally connected to the shutdown of, um, of, of Trump. So it, it, and, and we should understand that. We should understand the significance of the Trump action for our side, what it says about the forward motion of the Black Lives Matter movement, its impact, the extent to which it has legitimized protests and mobilization, and in particular, the idea of disruption in the United States. But we should also understand that the Trump, that same rally, says something about the other side. That is, there were Trump supporters at the rally who had Klan, Ku Klux Klan buttons, who had t-shirts that said, all lives matter, who had T-shirts that said "Blue Lives Matter" in reference to the cops, and who were chanting "CPD." CPD is the Chicago Police Department, the department that murdered Laquan McDonald. And Everybody knows what they mean when they when they're chanting CPD. They know what they're what they're celebrating, and so it reveals what the state of the U.S. is, which is a po- things are very polarized um, politically. And that was the case before the emergence of Black Lives Matter, but the the, the movement has crystallized it. In a big way,
3: and you're on 3CR Solidarity Breakfast
2: with me and Kim. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love the audience participation. We were just talking about it. They even went hiss. <laughs> I know. He's so lovely, though, that you're everyone's so captivated and willing to meet him halfway in the audience. It's that's wonderful. exactly
3: right. Uh, so we're listening to Corey Peterson Smith, who was a speaker at uh, Marxist Two uh, Two. 2016. And uh, he's talking about Black Lives Matter. In Chicago. In Chicago. Yeah. So let's move on to the next bit of what he's got to say.
4: I want to talk about some of the challenges facing the the movement. Um, You know that the phrase Black Lives Matter came in response to the murder of Trayvon Martin, the black teenager who was stalked by George Zimmerman and murdered in cold blood. Uh, and then the police showed up but refused, they, they didn't bother to arrest Zimmerman, even though he, he, he uh, admitted to this murder that it took weeks and weeks of protest to even get an arrest, and then once Zimmerman was arrested, ultimately he was acquitted. It was out of that struggle that the phrase Black Lives Matter uh, emerged, and that phrase was launched with the Ferguson uprising after Michael Brown's uh, murder in that city in Missouri. So you all know that. You know the origin of the movement. You know about the wave of protest today. And what I want to talk about is now, uh, a year or so into the movement, some of the challenges that that, that we're facing. Um, and I want to start with the question of, of, of repression. Um, you know, there was a point at which the uh, U.S. federal government in the form of the FBI um, and and their director, uh, James Comey, um, and the mainstream media outlets like New York Times and CNN and so on settled on this narrative that the Black Lives Matter movement had gone too far and it had ushered in a war on cops, that now the cops are... Uh, on the defensive because, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement has just taken things too far. Um, and, uh, you know, th- there were some things, some, some things happened, uh, but, but mostly there was kind of, uh, imagine things that didn't happen. I'll just say that in December of 2014, a, um, a lone person with no connection to the movement killed uh, two police officers in New York City. Um, and, of course, the police blame the Black Lives Matter movement. They said that it's created this climate, which this kind of thing happens. And the head of the, the police officers' union in New York said that this department, this, the NYPD is now a wartime police department, that it's on a war footing um, you know, against black people. So that's, that's, um, that's one thing uh, uh, that happened. But then there were all these manufactured things. So there were these articles... The New York Times and elsewhere that said that there was this spike in crime that now people are committing all kinds of crimes because they know that they can get away with it because the police are so scared to do their job uh, because of the Black Lives Matter movement. They invented this thing called, they they called it the Ferguson Effect. They said that now, unfortunately, when police are trying to do their job, people take out their cell phones and they start recording them. um, (laughs) And that's (laughs) unfair because they can't do their job. (laughs) There's a lot that you can say here. There's a lot going on uh, in, with this. One, I think there's an irony in the police saying, no fair, we're under surveillance, we're being monitored, <laughs> <Right laughs> we're activists, when they are part of the, this global uh, um, apparatus of, um, of, of surveillance. So on. put that one aside. Um, uh, but but um, the, the, the other thing is, is, it's good that they can't do their job, but I think the point is, their job <laughs> is violent and racist. So it's a good thing, actually, when they can't do their job. But in any case, the the story about the crime, the the spike in crime was was manufactured. Whatever. This was the kind of narrative. This was the the, the company line from from the ruling class. And it gave a signal to go on the offensive, because in the early days, the first wave of protests in every major city in the country, people were shutting down highways. People were blockading highways, and for the most part, the cops had to stand by and let it happen, lest, lest there be another Ferguson-style confrontation. But with this war on cops narrative, they got the message that you can go ahead and go on the offense. I just want to say a bit about what that looked like. So in Boston, where I live, um, on Martin Luther King Day, January 2015, um, people participated in a highway blockade. The state police showed up, Um, and one of my friends who was part of the protest, the cops broke her arm uh, while they were uh, arresting her. One of the people who was part of the protest worked for the the city, she had a job in the city government. The next day she was fired in a very public way for her participation. Then the, the local prosecutors released the names and addresses of all of the protesters who were, who were arrested. Um, this got to the hands of a right-wing radio station who then broadcast their names, who said, call these people's jobs and tell them uh, to be fired and so on. These people got hate mail uh, uh, and things like that. So um, that's, that's one example of what it looked like when a local ruling class uh, uh, and local right-wing went on the offensive. And there were other examples of both the state and the right lane, going on the offensive. I'm sure that you heard about what happened uh, last June in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, when um, a white supremacist named Dylan Roof went to an historic black church um, in the evening for a, for a prayer meeting. He prayed with the congregants there, and they took out a gun, and he murdered nine black people in their church. Um, and uh, it's not only... It, it, First of all, the fact that he felt emboldened to do so has everything to do with the state's response. It it wasn't just this kind of lone gunman, but somebody who took the very same signal that the police uh, and city governments took to go on the offensive. But the other thing is that his story, the story not only of the shooting itself, but of what happened afterward, reveals so much about the criminal justice system and how it works in the United States. The fact that he committed this shooting and then escaped it's shocking, considering the level of surveillance on black people just for walking down the street. I mean, you, you've seen uh, uh, the videos of, of black people who are grabbed for jaywalking and other, you know, non-crimes, uh, really. And yet, somebody's able to commit a mass shooting and escape to drive hundreds of miles away. And when he's actually finally arrested, when he confesses to the crime, and so on, his treatment by the police was so revealing. Not only did they put a bulletproof vest on him for his protection, but before taking him to the police station, they drove him to Burger King so he could get a meal uh, before what was sure to be a difficult day for him. (laughs) So um, at the same time as that shooting happened, there was a spate of uh, burnings of black churches across the South. Um, At least half a dozen churches were set on fire um, in, in in a span of a few weeks. And one of the remarkable things was that news stories about this, there's a news story in the New York Times where they interviewed uh, local police investigators, and they said, it's just a coincidence that all of you, we we have no evidence of wrongdoing. And In one of of, of, of the cases, they argued that lightning had struck uh, the church, actually. So, you know, there's something absurd about the whole thing, but it also, it reveals something else, that is, when you know, that black people are under attack, when it's uh, it's undeniable that a white supremacist murders a bunch of black people, and then churches are burned in the same area, and the police say, well, there's nothing we can do, then you see the level of... uh, There's no accountability for any... I mean, who do you you go to? I remember there was this one... um, I can't remember if it was was, was somewhere somewhere in the south. A black man was found hanging from a tree in, in his backyard... And when the police came, they said, well, maybe it was a suicide. I mean, this, you know, he, he, he was, he was clearly lynched, and yet the authorities charged with investigating such a thing have chosen not to, systematically, again and again across the country. Um, one more example, which is in November um, of last year in Minneapolis, uh, white supremacists shot four Black Lives Matter protesters, there was this camp um, where protesters were, were holding an ongoing protest against the police. And, of course, the whole thing was heavily monitored by police all the time. And then, mysteriously, one night, the police disappeared for a bit. They weren't present. And in that time, it just so happens that a group of white supremacists approached the camp and opened fire with live ammunition. And thankfully, nobody was uh, lethally wounded, but they, they wounded four Black Lives Matter protesters. So, this gives you a sense of the response um, of, 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 a, of a country that calls itself uh, a democracy. I mean, and it, 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 it all takes place against the backdrop of an escalation in the police killing. As I said the other night, the police actually killed more people last year than they had uh, the, the, the year before. And, um, the, uh, and it's, it's not just, I should say, it's not just that the police killed more people, but the non-indictments of the police also kept on coming, even in very high-profile cases like the case of Tamir Rice. Um, I'm not sure how many people know the case, so I'll just, I'll just say a word about Tamir, who was a 12-year-old boy um, who was playing in a park with a toy gun uh, and um, was murdered by the police. And the, his having a toy gun is somehow held up as uh, the justification that the police just didn't know that it was a toy now I don't know if you're familiar with the United States, but guns are kind of a, like, a lot of guns, um, and playing with toy guns is not is is, is not out of the ordinary at all. Um, and plenty of white children play with toy guns, so so this it has nothing to do with that. Twelve-year-old it wasn't just that that twelve-year-old Tamir was killed, um, but as per usual, the cops lied about it. They said that they gave him a warning when surveillance footage was was released it showed the cops showing up on the scene and jumping out of the car and shooting him immediately. But if that wasn't enough, Tamir's older sister was in the playground and she saw what happened and she went to go help her brother and the cops tackled her to the ground and they handcuffed her and they put her in the police car. So Tamir was murdered by the police um, and his, the, his murderers also were, um, were, were not indicted. Um, and, and, and so I just want to give a sense of the kind of terror that with which the state has, has responded, um, uh, and the kind of terror that's been unleashed in, in, in black America. I was thinking in Boston, we had a protest in response to the non-indictment of, um, of Tamir Rice's killers. And when I got to the protest, it was surrounded by police. So, you, so think about it, what it means to be a black person. You've seen, for over a year now, endless footage of the police murdering black people, and then you see them get away with it. And in fact, you're going to a protest to protest the police violence and the impunity with which they carry out the violence, and you get there and it's surrounded by police. Right? Just to give you a sense, you know, it, it, it's not, you know, I know that you, you've, you've heard about the kind of uh, discursive or rhetorical debate between Black Lives Matter and All Lives Matter, but it isn't just a battle of words or ideas. This is violence that we're up against. Okay, so repression is just um, one means of intervention by the ruling class uh, to undermine the, the, the movement and discourage it. It's not the only one. I'll just say a word about, um, about foundation money. One of the really interesting things that's happened in the United States over the past year is a bunch of rich people, major corporations, have discovered their concern for black people. And it just so happens that they're offering all kinds of grants for the right people to apply to, and there's this great article that talked about um, a bunch of wealthy, uh, you know, liberal donors um, who wanted to give their money to do their part for the Black Lives Matter movement. And one of them was quoted as saying, "You know, we really want this money to be used in a productive way. And, you know, there's something a little unproductive about shutting down highways and things like that." So, so this is an intervention. You know, corporations like Google, for example, have, have donated millions of dollars to. Uh, supposedly to the Black Lives Matter movement, but the idea is to promote certain elements of it and undermine others, right? Okay. The last thing I want to say is something about the state of ideas and organization within the movement itself. And just start by saying that the movement emerged in the context of a prevalence of, of, of a certain set of politics. And they are the politics, um, the the politics of of anti-racism and anti-oppression that dominate in in, uh, academia, um, uh, et cetera. Those have been the ones, those those ones have been big in the movement. And just to say a word about the the context for the, for the, the kind of, Political development and emergence of the movement, we're talking about the post civil rights era in the United States. After the civil rights and black power eras, which was the last high point of struggle in black resistance, the organizations that were built in that time were destroyed through arrests, through assassinations of Black Panthers and other (laughs) radical black activists uh, uh, through, you know, the police would instigate shootouts and so on. That happened on one hand. And on the other hand, the state was able to absorb a layer of civil rights activists, uh, particularly through the vehicle of the Democratic Party. Um, But they were able to, the idea was you, you too can find a place in American democracy and so on. And so now we're in a situation where we're cut off from the organizations that were built in that era, and we have to rebuild. We're at the very beginnings of rebuilding a new organization. And truthfully, new political lessons as well. The political lessons of that time were also lost in many ways. And so we're starting again. What it has meant that those organizations Or destroy is that if you do want to engage with the politics of anti-oppression or anti-racism, for the most part, the place to do so has been college campus, with ideas that are not um, that are ultimately not concerned with the question of liberation, right? Identity politics. Not only um, can only I as a black person kind of say something about racism, but also. The I mean, th- there's a particular iteration of identity politics at the moment that's so um, anemic that is the primary sort of uh, plane of struggle is through interpersonal confrontation with white people against their you know their their white privilege. So on. Okay, as as just as one prevalent idea, um, uh, the notion that more education in and of itself will uh, will change things. The notion that. We do not live under structures of oppression, but rather we live in a society that happens to have individuals who have oppressive ideas. And so even individual police officers, some may be good, and others are, are, are racist or whatever. And so the question is, how do we confront the racist ones on their racism, as opposed to looking at uh, the, the whole the whole sort of set of institutions in and, and, um, and, and the system. Uh, the idea that really self-reflection and healing is, is, is the, the kind of primary circle. Thing, things like this um, uh, are, are the context in which the movement is emerging. And at the same time, there is an emerging radicalization and a growing interest in the black radical tradition. An interest and excitement about the Black Panthers and people like Assata Shakur uh, and people like Angela Davis and Malcolm X um, and so on. So in this context, uh, you have these these tendencies both toward things like solidarity and unity um, with people who may not be black but who are on our side and so on. You have tendencies toward that and away from that. At the same time, there are those who say, we can't unite with people who aren't black because they'll betray us in the end. And at the same time, um, you know, initiatives like the one that, uh, that I worked on uh, around uh, black Palestine solidarity has gained a, a huge hearing and, and, and excitement, and I think um, has opened up, has been part of a, a, an opening up of new opportunities, really, for both the black and Palestinian struggle, and, and struggles for justice more broadly. Um, but I can't emphasize enough that I think we're at the beginnings of something, and that this is a process of learning, and I just want to read some of the words of uh, this woman named Samaria Rice. She's the mother of Tamir, the, the 12-year-old boy who was, who was killed, who I was talking about a minute ago. And I remember she did this interview where she said, uh, Tamir was the star of my life and the police didn't even give him a chance. She, she issued a statement when the cops who killed him were not invited, or been indicted. She said, my family and I are in pain and devastated by the non-indictment of officers Timothy Lehman and Frank Garback." for the murder of our beloved Tamir. After this investigation, which took over a year to unfold, and Prosecutor McGinty's mishandling of the case, we no longer trust the local criminal justice system, which we view as corrupt. No no longer trust it. I mean, there was a point at which they said, maybe it'll work out for us. And they've learned a hard lesson. I remember there was this interview with Samaria Rice where she said, I wasn't an activist. I was just a mom. I'm having to learn politics now. Erica Garner, the, the daughter of Eric Garner, said similar things. I think there wasn't an activist before this. So these are people who are intimately familiar with the state's racist violence, and they're learning lessons the hard way. And in a way, the whole movement is going through that process. So, you know, there, there's a certain, I mean, on one hand, there's this urgency with which we take on this struggle and at the same time. We need a certain patience with our own struggle as we relearn lessons lost and learn some new lessons.
3: And that was Curry Peterson Smith, fantastic talker, fantastic yeah, speaker. fantastic. Yeah, he's uh, a fantastic fellow, and he's been to uh, the Marxist conference for a couple of years in a row, which uh, has meant that uh, he <laughs> he has, actually has quite a massive following now.
2: Yeah. Um, I think there's quite a lot of people who are following him on social media as well, so people kind of keep up with what's happening in his world in America and get some more updates when he comes over here, which is fantastic.
3: Yeah, it is. It's great. Anyway, uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and uh, we're going to move on to uh, the uh, Panama Papers. Tell us all about the Panama Papers. Give us some background first.
2: Well, I was... Well, people probably know that it is a massive leak of um, basically the offshore tax system which benefits the ultra-rich. But what I found quite incredible is that this investigation has been going on for a year without us knowing. The International Consortium of Investigative Journalists along with um, news organisations around the world, including ones from Australia, have been investigating this Giant cache of documents for in secret for a year without any of it being leaked, uh, which is How is that ironic?
3: Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's funny. The other day I was read. I'm reading this book that uh, said that uh, in the uh, Pandora's box, at the bottom of the box, was irony. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that didn't escape either.
3: <laughs> Someone corrected me and said it was hope. Oh, I see. No, but I think irony is better. <laughs> But tell me, uh, how did the original leak happen? Has that been divulged?
2: No. Uh, I think that what we know is that it was leaked to this consortium of journalists. Um, About it's 2.6 terabytes worth of data, which is difficult to get your head around. WikiLeaks was 1.7 gigabytes, not terabytes. Yeah, right. So, yeah, it's a sort of a dot on a... A four piece of paper compared to the Panama Papers.
3: Yeah. Okay. So, uh, what 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 is it divulging? What what have they discovered, or what have they been telling us, feeding us, feeding the fish of people?
2: Well, the leaks go back. Well, data in the leaks goes back about forty years from the Panama-based law firm um, Mossack Fonseca, and which is actually quite a lot of fun to say. <laughs> um and I think the other thing that's come out from this leak is that it's uh, panamanium is a word. It's a so, great word. <laughs> yeah. But it's We're going details to have a party with words. A party with words, yes. It's details about the basically how they set up these shell companies in countries that mainly seem to be in the Caribbean, like the British Virgin Isles. Um I think that... Uh, Fonseca has been involved in setting up uh, 200,000 of these shell companies. So unlike normal companies, they don't have employees, uh, premises, anything like that. They just basically exist to hold assets or a bank account. And that they put these bank accounts in the names of intermediaries or proxies uh, so that they can't trace who the actual owners are. Um, and the reason that they put them in these beautiful sunny places um is because they have very lax privacy laws so while people like us if we're on Centrelink, we get every bit of our lives scrutinized you can go set up a shell company in the bahamas and there are no disclosure laws about who the real owner is and also you don't have to pay any tax so that's why they set them up in these in these places
3: now, this, and when you say it's 40 years uh, uh, old, and it, actually this whole system was set up about 40 years ago, wasn't it? And it was a tax dodge type arrangement. Uh, uh, there was a film recently called, uh, oh, I can't remember what it's called, but anyway, it goes through the whole system of shell companies and how they work. And then it was an Englishman who decided that he wasn't going to pay his tax. And so he started this whole methodology of shifting wealth, or not literally shifting it, uh, you gain your wealth in a particular country, but you offshore the profits. profits, so you don't have to pay any tax.
2: Well, I think what's interesting as well is that people have said, why aren't there more people from America, companies from America that have come out in these papers, and people speculate that the reason is actually because America is basically a tax haven, and so is the UK, really. So they've turned themselves into kind of tax havens. There are uh, much stronger privacy laws for companies in the US. So a lot of these companies, I think, are incorporated in Delaware, where there's also all these anti-poison pill, which, again, is actually an anti... um, What what do you mean, anti-poison pill? it It basically is people go on about, well, the rich go on about free trade and, you know, the market solves everything. But actually, people like Rupert Murdoch, who have companies incorporated in Delaware, these poison pills basically make it illegal and make it very difficult for other companies to take over their company. So it's actually anti-competitive. So all their rubbish about, you know, the market knows best. is just pure ideology.
3: And the risk. that They're risk takers.
2: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But I think what's quite incredible is the people that they've Well, what's interesting is the people whose names they've been putting these companies in. Like, we know that one is a a famous cellist, friend of Vladimir Putin's. But another one is someone who's much closer to home, and Four Corners investigated him. I think his name is Ian Taylor, and he's actually a Kiwi. And he was in the news last year because his New Zealand company was caught in Thailand um, carrying... um, a cargo plane with 35 tons of illegal arms that were headed for, they believe, Iran and North Korea, which seems absolutely incredible. And apparently this guy, um, the investigation has found, is actually the director of hundreds of companies in Panama, because he's obviously such a trustworthy person. Ah, fantastic. So this is obviously one of the proxies, an example of one of the proxies that they use. They just get people who obviously don't mind if their name is dragged through the mud and have probably no idea about what these companies are doing. In oh, their well, that, well, of course, that's not the part of the deal.
3: No. Yeah, fantastic. That's amazing. That's better than a, um, a John le Carre story, really.
2: And I think it's only going to get better because early next month, so early May, the journalists are continuing to investigate these leaks. And in fact, some of the journalists who've worked on the project and been interviewed said that the real tragedy is that they will never discover all the stories in the data set. It's so vast. But they're actually going to make this database of leaks available to the public. So it is something that other people, if they have the skills, can search and come up with stories about. So hopefully people do that. But it's very interesting because it's like a mind
3: map of evil, really.
2: Yeah, it's sort of like how to
3: be evil. Yeah, well, all the different ramifications that different people with money have actually uh, sponsored over 40 years, it's quite... quite. If you put it all together like this, it's uh, quite mind-blowing, really.
2: Well, I should say that uh, some of the things that the leaks have revealed so far is that uh, the they've basically revealed the offshore holdings of 12 current and former world leaders... Um, including obviously Iceland's Prime Minister who has been forced to resign now in a hilarious circumstances. Have you seen that interview with him and the journalist? No, tell me. It's, it's really fabulous. He's doing this interview with a journalist about the global financial crisis and Iceland's banks and he's talking about how, oh, dodging tax just isn't the Icelandic way or whatever. And he's going <laughs> on about this... And digging himself a massive, massive, massive hole. And then the journalist turns to him and says, oh, but what about you? And he just completely flips. He blames his wife. Then he runs away. And the journalist is just sitting there like with this giant grin on his face like it's the best day of his life. He's just realised that not only has he nailed the Prime Minister but the guy has also had some sort of mental breakdown on camera. (laughs) Um, and after that, there were huge protests.
3: Well, there was. It was reported that uh, uh, that oh, I I haven't resigned. I've just stepped aside for a while so that people can forget it. So he has actually resigned now.
2: I think so. But actually, the protesters were saying that they were. Some of them were saying they were quite disappointed because we wanted them to dissolve the whole parliament. Yes. So I think that Iceland, there's been a has been quite unstable for a while in terms of their. Um, political candidates. are well, not it's happy. Quite a, no, not happy. Not happy. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> um, and obviously a lot less so now. But sorry, what what I was going to say was that there are actually going to be a lot more leaks um, happening in early May because uh, this consortium of journalists has announced that they plan on releasing the names connected with more than 200,000 offshore companies so we're talking about the beneficiaries the directories, the shareholders the intermediaries and they imagine that there will be some sort of bang around that um and that's they plan on reporting on this to continue reporting on this
3: this is fantastic because this is just another step in the uh march towards uh exposing capitalism for its its uh gross weakness it's 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 uh, the, you know this need for system change, really.
2: I think part of the sad thing about it is that there hasn't been all this outrage in Australia, and I think it's partly because everybody assumed that they were doing this stuff anyway. People are quite deeply cynical with politics and with the business class.
3: Yes, but there's a difference between knowing that this is the case and having it verified.
2: Yeah, I think that's true. As well, it does show what an incredible lie when they say that, oh, we don't have money for nice things like healthcare, like penalty rates, uh, like education. You can point at them and say, no, you're lying. You know, we lose, I think it was estimated by one academic that each year the global economy loses $330 million. It goes missing. And I don't know about you, but People are just not that complacent with money. You very rarely find it just lying around, unfortunately. That's how much is missing each year. And it would only take $30 million to cure world hunger. So if you do the maths, that's only 9%, around 9% of uh, 9 to 10% of the money that goes missing through tax avoidance um, could pay to eradicate world hunger.
5: Oh,
3: that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. Um, it reminds me, uh, I just recently went off to see uh, a, a film called Lady Killers, uh, which is an Erling uh, production, old, old film, fantastic. And it's actually about a little old lady who stymies a whole crew of robbers. It's got Alan, Alec Guinness in it and Peter Sellers in a, uh, as a young man. It's it's actually Absolutely hysterical film, but she gets told in the end that she can keep the money. We don't; uh, it will just confuse things. Just confuse things, and she says, "Oh, oh, okay then," and uh, goes out and gives a pound to the beggar. And he goes, "Oh, madam, madam, no, she's got sixty thousand pounds, <laughs> which they don't want back because it will just complicate things."
2: <laughs> it sounds like the Australian um, tax office, actually. I'm just, <laughs> like there's there's supposed to be this. Uh, there's now the Senate in Australia is going to be putting questions to the Australian Taxation Office, which is really, I suppose, the most understaffed and impotent organisation no. aside from maybe which ASIC. Which they've,
3: and, and they've done. And they've done this on purpose. And then they have a headline saying that, oh, we're going to solve the bank- banking problem by beefing up ASIC. <laughs> 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 laughing to my coffee.
2: I know. Well, there's been 800 Australian taxpayers have been linked to these leaks including Wilson Security, which um, guards the Australian um, Taxation Office, which is a bit awkward. Um, there, they can't even discover the, you know, um, they can't even enforce what is under their nose. That's interesting. I think, that Wilson
3: yeah. Security is now being targeted by uh, Whacker. Oh,
2: yeah.
3: yeah. They they believe that uh, Wilson's needs to uh, uh, pull up its socks. Yeah. So th- that will appear on the radar there will be actions against Wilsons. Uh, the other thing I don't know if p- people have noticed, that um, the rise of the merchant bankers in the uh, political scene, we've got one, Turnbull, uh, but I noticed that uh, in France, for example, there's a new uh, fellow who's going to op- uh, develop a new party leading up to their next elections, and apparently he was formerly a merchant banker. He's now going to head a party in Par- in France. And I notice that in uh, some of the more troubled countries in South America at the moment, there's a couple of, I think it's uh, Chile and uh, uh, Brazil and Argentina. There's there's these things going on there where they're going to they're talking about uh, impeaching uh, people for corruption, that sort of thing. The mo- moves on presidents, but uh, the people who are doing the moves, they're ex merchant bankers as well. So it's the rise of the merchant bankers in the political scene. Watch out for this.
2: See if they actually get any traction because possibly it's them becoming more political. I love what um, the Financial Review has been talking about there. i have got um, the representative, representatives of the ruling class talking about how, oh, no, Australia's banks are going to become the political football in the next election. It's like, you're not refugees. No one cares about you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do they bleed? Do they have blood? <laughs>
3: You're on Solidarity Breakfast here with Annie and Kim. We're having a, a, a laugh at the expense of all those poor, poor banks in Australia. Yeah, you
2: really <laughs> should read the financial review. It's a tale of woe today. Is it? Yes. <laughs> the whole thing is just full up with you. would think that Bill Shorten was some sort of radical. It's <laughs> ridiculous.
3: <laughs> that's, that's, you just made me laugh and laugh and laugh, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim and we, you're on 3CR.
0: A new illustrated book by Alina and Bruce MacDonald stars our beloved comrade Bill Della as the protagonist in a journey that stems from Ballarat to Humpty Doo and features all the lefty issues that were dear to Bill's big heart. 3 has a few precious copies of this beautiful book for sale for $20 plus $5 postage. All proceeds will go to the Solidarity Breakfast Program's Radiothon fund. You can buy it online at the 3CR shop. Go to the 3CR website, 3CR.org.au or pick up your copy at the station. Come and join Melbourne's top musicians as they showed their support for human rights. The concert, Fearless Music, Features political, protest and freedom songs written by the world's best fearless songwriters. Singers include Ross Wilson, Stephen Cummings, Cash Savage, Liz Stringer, Mark Seymour, Jane Clifton, Rob Snarski, Sean Kelly and Lisa Miller. Fearless Music, Sunday, May the 8th at 3pm at the Mimo Music Hall in St Kilda. Book tickets now at memomusichall.com.au Sponsored by Liberty Victoria a 3CR
1: supporter. A week Solidarity Bricky Team Lister when congratulations to a Mr Scuttle Them More Lash care Parliament House Canberra for being the first and for that matter only entry to answer correctly our very difficult quiz we ended on last week. Well, not only the only correct entry but also the only entry... Just to refresh the memory, as if anyone would forget what was on the week that was, evil unions must have a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga mission and anti-union-specific laws and bureaucracies. Good banks most definitely must not have a Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga mission. The last thing we need are specific laws and bureaucracies for the good, good banks. And the question? Spot the difference. Well, Scuttle them, Care Canberra, spotted the difference, realised the clue was in the question. It's easy. Scuttle them is obviously very bright. As you said, the evil unions are evil, the good bags are good. Well done, Scuttle them, well done, well spotted. On the good banks, one of their good practitioners, Mike Hertz the Poor, supremo of the Bendigo and Adelaide Bank, confirmed them's answer. A Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal Kanga mission would be a drain on the economy and a waste of taxpayers' money. And how selfless of non-taxpayers to care so about those who do pay tax. The most damning comment came from a collective statement by the big banks, swallowing their pride over vicious customer-benefiting competition in a common cause. A Her Most Gracious Majesty's Royal King omission, they howled, would create a rod for Troublu back by damaging the sector's reputation in the eyes of international investors. Uh, hang on, hang on. Surely that doesn't mean what it means, does it? That, that if they had a Royal Kanga mission, they'd be sprung. That surely not, that surely not. There is something to hide all the corollary that you could only hold a Royal Kanga mission if there was nothing to hide. On the other hand, the poor dears' concern may be misplaced. The international investors may be deeply impressed by whatever it is the banks don't want us to know. Honor among thieves, that sort of thing. A them more less than also care Parliament House Canberra... Hmm. Coincidence. wonder if it's the same bloke who said the regulator didn't need all the money the government took off it now says it does need all the money so they can avoid a Royal Kanga mission and the banks would have to contribute and he would be angry. Very, very, very angry if the banks passed the contribution on to their customers and we can but imagine how the bank boardrooms must have been shaking in their boots. Well, their Swiss leather shoes when they heard Scuttlebem's entreaty. We hear what you say, but we must respect the expectations of our customers, who are, after all, our prime concern that we will hit them with a fee for just everything, like our very clever walking-in-the-door fee, walking-out-the-door fee, and walking-past-the-door fee. In other words, getting them coming and going in every way. But let us say we regret having to make Scuttle them very, very, very angry, because we regret respect his sincerity in making that statement. It reflects our sincerity when we say our customers are prime to everything we do. On being sprung, US of the UN of the US of the world would-be big supremo Donald Trample the Poor has been traversing the country in that big private jet he poses in front of with his name screaming from the fuselage. He does have a few other private planes, but this is his major campaign vehicle. Well, it turns out its registration expired in January, and he's been flying around illegally in an unregistered vehicle, to wit, a private jet. A crime carrying about 280 grand in fines, presumably a pittance for Donald, but more importantly, three years in the slammer. Calm down, listener, I wouldn't get my hopes up. Although, technically, Donald could be the first big supremo to take the oath of office from behind bars, because we all know there's no such thing as a law for the rich and a law for the poor. On the latter... If one of the undeserving poor had failed to pay registration since January on the cheap bomb, the jalopy, she or he needs to get to the assembly line or the the below-the-poverty-line Walmart job, what odds she or he would have escaped the law for the poor? I did say presumably a pittance for Donald because the registration fee for a private jet is all of $5 for three years. So maybe he's not going as well as he makes out bet the registration for that law for the poor person's bomb cost lots more than $5. Still, she or he could buy a private jet for commuting to work and cut the registration bill to $1.33 a year. Then again, for the latter, a bit of bread and circuses. Let them eat cake to mix our diversions. Here and in the USR, there was a marketing and media report about complaints from subscribers to a new television streaming service set up by NBC Universal that technical hitches had prevented them from from streaming, keeping up with the Kardashians and the Real Housewives. I would have thought they should get letters of appreciation and heartfelt thanks. The ubiquitous Kardashians make our dear little Paris, apart from her big feet, look like a celebrity who earned the title, did something. Well, I suppose she did. She inherited an obscene fortune, ensuring she'd never have to do a real day's work in her life. One of Donald Trample the Poor's heroes, Zion supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo, this week declared Syria's Golan Heights, seized by Zion 40 years ago and under military occupation since, was now officially Zion and that was that. Evil Syria would never get it back. Well, Zion could also declare occupied Gaza, occupied West Bank are also now officially part of Zion rather than unofficially. After all, they legally throw locals off their land and establish legal Zion settlements, and surely it's reasonable because the Palestinians are a non-people, stateless people with no country, which is the same thing. So how can a peace-loving, freedom-loving, democracy-loving Zion take their country when they haven't got a country in the first place and haven't had a country since Zion took their country, if you can follow all that? We didn't take their country! Benjamin corrected us. The free world, the lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy gave us our country because we too just love liberty, freedom and democracy and these terrorists are the enemies of liberty. That probably explains why the lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy so support Zion. Good news. The capitalist review headline Thursday. Relief for buyers Sydney median house price drops below a million. Bet that led to scenes of wild celebration down at the King's Cross Homeless Support Centre. On homeless and dull budging, notice the State Department of Jobs. It has a longer title, but Jobs comes into it. Department of Jobs, which presumably is about creating jobs, plans to sack, or sorry, suddenly let go, heaps of its own staff. While on apparent contradictions, because we know there are no real contradictions in capitalism in the greatest little economic order of them all, the chainsaw the forest industry wants wood waste from its chainsaw in the forest to be used to produce electricity. Bit of added value for them, why throw away potential profit? "'This is a massive opportunity for us "'to increase the amount of renewable energy, "'to move away from traditional carbon-intensive energy sources "'to cleaner, greener energy,' the True Blue Aussie Chainsaw, the Forest Products Association declared. "'What good news. "'Chopping down our forests is renewable. "'Although, if that's the case, "'wonder what went wrong on Easter Island?' So, Chainsaw in the Forest is now environmentally sensitive, greener. As our American friends would say, turns waste into greener, green backs. Back to the indigent, the homeless. Fascinated by the mainstream media lazy reporting yesterday of a press release from the spin doctors around state housing for profits minister Martin Foley about the occupation of homes acquired for the East-West Link. Tuesday I rang Foley's office saying that on city limits next morning we were talking to one of those homeless occupiers and could the minister come on to join the discussion or could they answer several questions like... What will happen to the homes? Will they be transferred to the private sector or be kept for public housing? What harm are these people doing, seeing the homes are vacant? And are the questions about public land and public housing being transferred to the private sector? Chance for the Minister to put his case. We'll get back to you, his office said, and as usual, that's the last we've heard of them. But... Folly spin doctors put out a press release on their terms and the media reports it slavishly. And what did it say? The homeless people occupying Bendigo Street were, wait for it, preventing homeless people being housed. Uh, And he gets paid heaps of our money to come up with that while avoiding facing real questioning from those who provide the heaps of money. And finally, to think Martin Foley used to be a public housing support worker. There is a rally in Bendigo Street tomorrow at two pm. Wonder if Martin will be there to tell the homeless they're hurting the homeless. Good morning. Oh no, what was that? Sorry, I, I haven't mentioned the election. Oh yes, yeah, sorry. Well, well, deep analysis. Sorry, what was that again? Time's up. Oh dear, what bad luck. Good morning.
3: Well, there you go. Cut us off guard. That was, this is the week that was. Kevin, he uh, has uh, the uh, gimlet eye on what's going on in the outside world, in the political scene throughout the week. Thank you very much, Kevin. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and you're on 3CR 855 on your AM dial, but also you, we podcast by Monday. This will be broadcast, so please. Uh, uh, if you're not uh, running off to the dawn service at, uh, in fact, oh I'm, yeah, there's that. <laughs> I was going to say I had to be reminded that it was X- An- Anzac Day, so uh, there you go. <laughs> Something's working.
2: <laughs> yeah, I know. I we had a there's a holiday at university on Monday, so I was sort of like. Happy Anzac Day. Oh, that's not politically correct. Okay, be quiet now, Kim. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And uh,
3: coming up to the end of the show, really, we're in the last half hour. And uh, what we're going to do is uh, play an interview I did with uh, Anthony Lowenstein. Anthony is an academic, uh, Australian academic, but uh, he's actually based in East Jerusalem these days. He uh, has written a number of books. Uh, and the latest was Disaster Capitalism, and he'll explain more about Disaster Capitalism. But he's at the moment uh, progressing towards making uh, Disaster Capitalism into a film. And as I said before, he's just packed his bags and gone off to hot dogs uh, to uh, uh, pitch his idea to see if uh, there will be uh, more support for uh, uh, his uh, production, which is... uh, you know, quite advanced, actually. I Because mean, we're really
2: sick of capitalism's production of disaster <laughs> capitalism. <laughs> exactly. That's right. We need
3: another view. So uh, keep that on your calendar. It will
2: turn up. Disaster capitalism, the
3: documentary. But uh, let's uh, hear what Anthony's got to say.
5: Disaster capitalism was a term coined by Naomi Klein, the Canadian writer and journalist, in 2007 when she wrote the book The Shock Doctrine. And she was really arguing, she went back, pretty much to the 70s onwards, that the ways in which corporations and individuals were making money from misery. She focused on war and um, other areas of development. My book, Disaster Capitalism, which came out last year, 2015, looks at uh, four particular areas, Um, agent development, mining, immigration and war and I spent the last years visiting places like Afghanistan, Haiti, Papua New Guinea, Greece, the US, UK and Australia. I, I am Australian but I haven't been based there for a while and looking at various different examples of, so as an example, so in Afghanistan there's been obviously a US backed war there since October 2001 and most people of course will read about the war, know about the war, know that it's been a complete other disaster What's less known is how much money is being made from the war, not just by Afghans but also by Americans, by Australians. I'm talking about contractors. I'm talking about people who literally were paid by the US government and the Australian government to transport goods across Afghanistan, military goods, and that literally they, was, they were paying off the Taliban to not shoot at them. There's been evidence that I've gathered and others have gathered in the last uh, five years to show that Afghan security companies and foreign security companies were literally being paid by taxpayer dollars from the U.S. to corporations that were then paying off the Taliban to not shoot at them when they're transporting tanks and other military weapons. I mean, so, you know, you're basically paying off your enemy while you're fighting your enemy. It's an insane situation. Um, another key focus of the book has been immigration. It's been a huge focus. So obviously, immigration has been a massive debate in Australia for really, well, you could argue for 200 years or so, but particularly in the last 20 and particularly in the last five years.
3: I, I noticed that in, say, for example, in Haiti, the interviews you were doing in Haiti, that this was a perfect example of uh, how... Um, An industry that's been created around uh, giving aid, for example, in this sort of capitalist arrangement, where charity is basically uh, a a key element in a capitalist arrangement.
5: So Haiti was a really, really grim example, and that's why I spent quite a lot of time there in the last years. For listeners who don't know, there was an uh, uh, an awful earthquake there in January 2010, which killed... Normally, normally knows, but anywhere between two to three hundred thousand people devastated the country, particularly around the capital Port-au-Prince. And Haiti itself had been very much economically and politically broken for a long time before the earthquake. It's basically been a U.S. client state for roughly a hundred years. Washington has backed successive dictatorships um, in that country, and it's the poorest country in its hemisphere. So it's in very bad shape. The earthquake happens infrastructure which barely existed was broken. So you had huge amounts of foreign aid coming in. And initially when an earthquake happens or a disaster strikes, I think there can be an argument made for immediate assistance, water, food, shelter, tents, medical care. I can see an argument for that. If the country itself can't cope and Haiti clearly could not, then I think that is a good thing that other countries want to help. That's fine. The problem is that a lot of the money that the U.S. under um, President Obama pledged roughly $10 billion in supposed aid for Haiti, the majority of that money has not gone to the Haitian people. So USAID, which is the U.S. government arm that distributes uh, aid around the world, is very much used as a weapon to support U.S. corporations. So let me explain what that means briefly. So earthquake in Haiti happens and USAID puts out a call for, we need people to repair this hospital. We need people to build homes. We need organisations to provide water. Corporations usually are or often are operating for profit, will put their name forward, either in a legitimate tender process or not. The majority of staff that those corporations or organisations are using are American, not Haitian. So Company X comes into Haiti, might provide the work, adequately or not, Haitians are rarely engaged, rarely actually employed, rarely trained to the point where it's now six years, six and a half years nearly since the earthquake and figures have been tallied which show that 2%, 2% of US government money which was meant to help the Haitian people went to the Haitian people. In other words, the majority of that money went to corporations and others outside Haiti. Now, the result of that in practice is that when you're in Haiti and you speak to the Haitian people, they are confused and angry and pissed off with the fact that they know, many of them, that the US under or well, President Obama, particularly the State Department that was run then by Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, and he's getting, I might add, virtually no questions about that um, during her presidential run, surprise, surprise, that a lot of that money that went to Haiti disappeared. Now, some of it was corruption, to be sure, but the other area which is less talked about is that two things, briefly. One, the US government has pushed for decades in Haiti this so-called concept of industrial parks. Basically, large facilities where Haitians uh, make clothes, cheap clothes, for Western and American consumers. So think of the Gap shops, Walmart, places like that. And... Clinton, Hillary and Bill's great grand plan after the earthquake was to build more of these, to apparently give Haitian workers great opportunities to make money for their families. Well, the truth is now six years on, and I've spent time at some of these industrial parks covertly, these are not traditional sweatshops. So I'm not saying people are working 23 hours a day and being beaten. They're not that bad. But the conditions are poor, pay is terrible. They're often very far away from people's families. They provided very, very few jobs, and yet there's no accountability for that failure. And that, to me, really goes to the heart of how aid is regularly misspent. And one of the things I tried to do in the book and what we're trying to argue in the film, Disaster Capitalism, is to say, do we really know, do any of us know, where our aid money is going? It's not to argue that aid money should not be given. Personally, some people think aid is bad by definition. Okay, we can have that discussion, fine. I don't think all aid is evil and bad. I do think, though, having seen this in Afghanistan and Haiti and Papua New Guinea and South Sudan, that aid can massively distort a situation to the point where countries are then overly reliant on aid and the agendas that aid givers, both NGOs and governments, are pushing may be very, very different to the people in those countries and what they want.
3: Well, see, there's the issue of dependency versus empowerment, isn't it? And one of yes. the arguments is that the U.S. aid that's given out is really their, their job, and they'd see this as a respectable aim, is to actually promote uh, U.S. business. They'd see that as being reasonable. But that that uh, thing about depend- creating dependence versus empowerment it appears to be a a core element in consumer capitalism, actually.
5: Absolutely. And I think what's so disturbing about the aid industry as it's developed in the last years is there's a term some listeners may have heard of called the NGOization, sort of a made-up word in a way, but it's a good one that really explains how in a lot of countries, I'm talking about mainly developing countries, NGOs have replaced uh, the role of the state in many cases. Now, this is not to suggest that all NGOs are doing bad work. I mean, I've been to many countries where NGOs do essential work, they do advocacy, they promote uh, human rights, they provide support. For example, in South Sudan, I saw regularly when the state is either absent or willfully blind to uh, people, their own people suffering, NGOs are trying to provide literally the most basic things: water, sanitation, food, you know, know, the life and death kind of things that we all need. But the problem is where it starts becoming a question where, and I heard this a lot in Haiti and I've written about this in the book and it's going to be in the film as well, is how um, NGOs or other aid organizations will sometimes exaggerate problems to keep the donor money coming. Now, you could say, well, if organization X or NGO Y is doing important work, it doesn't matter that they're exaggerating the problems in a place. If they're getting money, it's going to good use. Well, I think it is a problem because for two reasons. One, in many of these cases that I've looked at, and other places I haven't, I do know that locals are too often ignored in this equation. So it's remarkable how often in Haiti or Afghanistan, Haitians and Afghans themselves will say, we're kind of ignored here. Does it matter what we think? Does it matter what we want? Are we being listened to? Does it matter that Afghans, many Afghans have been saying for years that the US and Australian aid plan in their country has predominantly gone to both the corrupt government in Kabul, both the Karzai government and now the Ghani government, Or secondly, it's gone to warlords who are often far worse than the Taliban. Now, I think a lot of foreigners find it a hard concept to understand Mm. that Mm. a lot of Afghans don't look at the Taliban with admiration. I mean, there are some who do, for sure, but the majority don't. But the sad, brutal reality, as I heard myself, is that a lot of communities in Afghanistan are, are sort of in this pincer movement between the Taliban increasingly ISIS, which is just what the country doesn't need, a corrupt um, central government, which is mostly absent throughout the country, and warlords, who often are backed and funded and armed and trained by the West, particularly the US, although Australia at the time as well. You put locals in an ups- absolutely impossible position. So where you have growing Taliban support throughout the country, I'm not saying it's solely because the US gave money to warlords but it's definitely a huge factor and you don't often hear about that and as you said in your question the corporatization of aid is exactly how we got to this point where you have in afghanistan and haiti and elsewhere huge amounts of money that have gone to corporations to allegedly provide services build schools build roads and u.s government reports themselves have come out and said we as u.s government authorities are giving money to Corporation X. They are not providing that service. Despite the fact that they don't provide the service, they're still getting more contracts to do more work. That is how the system has become broken. And when Obama was a candidate for president in 2007, he pledged to unwind and challenge and change the Bush administration crazy crony capitalism contracting system that they had pushed mostly after 9-11. Obama's done nothing on that, like pretty much all other issues. It's continued and deepened under Obama, that problem. So I only worry moving forward when you have either President Clinton next or President Trump or whoever it's going to be, that all these questions about aid and development are kind of somehow pushed aside and forgotten, but they matter. Because when an insurgency in Afghanistan or in Iraq and elsewhere is continuing to be fuelled, aid and development, and how the West operates in those countries is central to understanding why an insurgency has grown so strong in both those nations and elsewhere.
3: Well, it's kind of serpentine power. I mean, it was it, just a small example: is the Bougainville issue, where uh, mm. where they say, uh, "No, stop giving us aid." I mean, why would you? give us aid if we actually had control over our resources. It's quite clear that there are corporate interests that are being serviced by uh, providing what appears on on the surface quite a large amount of money in aid, but actually it's about controlling power and control.
5: Well, Bougainville is a really... Strategy example, uh, for listeners who don't know, Bougainville is in Papua New Guinea. It's in a province obviously to the north of Australia and it's an incredibly beautiful province but also sadly been close to being destroyed in the last decades. There was a huge Rio Tinto copper mine opened in the 70s and locals rightly felt that they were being shafted. They weren't getting paid much. They were being excluded. They were not benefiting from the mine and they tried to negotiate. That failed and a civil war began really between Rio Tinto, the Australian government, the Papua New Guinean government on one side and locals who rose up and for 10 years from the 80s to the late 90s there was one of the most brutal civil wars in our part of the world. Virtually no one knows about it now. Daily guest talked about um, up to 20,000 bougainvilles were killed um, the locals won now this is a really interesting example of a local community rising up against seemingly overwhelming odds and they won that battle the mine shut down the mine has not reopened I'll come back to that in a minute but the mine has remained closed so the locals won however at a massive massive cost I've spent quite a bit of time in Bougainville in the last five years and it remains beautiful but it is a broken place. Infrastructure barely exists. It's incredibly poor, unemployment's high. Um, Bougainville, when there was a peace agreement finally signed in the late 90s, one of the terms was that Bougainvillians would be allowed to have a referendum vote between 2015 and 2020 on whether they'd be an independent nation. And this is where the relevance of Bougainville is today, both in the book that I've done and the film that we're working on, that the condition that the Papua New New Guinean government say must happen, the Australian government, both under Labour and now the Liberals, say, you as Bougainville can only be independent if this Rio Tinto mine reopens. (laughs) In other words, we don't think you're able to found your own two feet. A dirty, polluting mine that was never cleaned up, I might add. And I've spent time in the old mine in the last years on a number of occasions. This is a, think of it as a massive, dirty, polluting pit in the middle of paradise that has polluted riverways, people, there's health problems of local communities all around the mine. None of that's been cleaned up, I might add. Nothing, zero. So now Bougainvillians are being told you can be independent, maybe if you reopen the mine. And a lot of Bougainvillians are opposed to that because even though it's a young population, they've heard stories from their parents and grandparents saying this mine destroyed us. Um, So what's really sad about this and revealing is that so much of Australian aid that has gone to Papua New Guinea and for listeners who don't know, Papua New Guinea uh, receives... um, roughly 500 million Australian dollars of aid every year. It's one of the highest aid receivers in the world from Australia that massively increased in the last year since the Labor government reopened Manus Island. So it's partly a bribe to shut them up about um, us sending um, refugees to Manus Island. But a lot of the money does not go to that. It just goes to Papua New Guineans. And yes, some of it does good work, but a lot of it is going to convince in a corrupt way, why the Papua New Guinean government should allow massive foreign particularly Australian mining companies to operate on Papua New Guinean land, including in Bougainville. And Julie Bishop, who's the foreign minister, has regularly come out and said she was in Bougainville last year, 2015, saying that Bougainville needs to reopen the mine, there needs to be a mature discussion about this, but ultimately that's what needs to happen. And a lot of the aid money clearly is connected to forcing and twisting the arm of a Burgundal government that sadly is incredibly corrupt as well to reopen the mine. And the resistance to that reopening is real. Um, I'm hoping it never again comes to a violent confrontation. The people who fought the resistance war in the 80s and 90s, many of them still have weapons. Many of them are still outspoken against the mine reopening. Many of them believe that there are other ways to support Bougainville, agriculture, um, tourism, I and mean, there's a massive tourist pop, um, possibility there. It would need to be sustainable. I'm not saying you get millions of tourists arriving next year, but you could do it in a, in a sustainable way. It's a beautiful part of the world. Just right now, unless you're an adventure tourist, it's pretty basic. The hotels, you can stay in a you know kind of like a, a box room, and some people like a bit of you know, a bit of nicer accommodation, that's fine. You could build those kind of hotels and attract more tourism. But without kind of serious international support, that's not going to happen. So it's a tragic reality that after the Australian government was a key supporter of the Papua New Guinean government and Rio Tinto in trying to crush that insurgency and failed, they're now having the chutzpah to come out and say, oh, yes, we're going to tell you how to run your affairs. And that's why a lot of people in Papua New Guinea and Bougainville said, we don't want your aid anymore. It's actually a curse. Yes, here and there it's helped people and here and there, I've seen, with my, seen my own eyes, it's helped with health clinics. I'm not going to say no Australian aid has done any good. That would obviously not be true. But the strings that come attached to that aid have been so destructive. Not least, I might add, that the Papua New Guinean political elite are one of the most corrupt in the world. An Australian knows this and does not care. That's-
3: we'll leave Anthony there. Uh, there was more to be said, but I'll have to say that um, you should keep your eyes out for the documentary Disaster Capitalism that will come out probably next year. Before we leave you at Solidarity Breakfast this morning, we've got a couple of announcements. Of course, the most important would probably have to be May Day, March the oh, Sunday the 1st of May, it's it's falls on Sunday and uh, there's going to be uh, a big march, of course. Uh, it starts at the corner of Victoria and Russell Street opposite Trades Hall. Uh, it's assembled at 1pm, but there's also a family day. It starts at 11am before and after the march, rides and games for children, breakfast and other activities at the same place. Uh, May Day Concert, Sunday the 1st of May, straight after the March and spe- Speakers Platform and the Victorian Trades Union Choir, the Victorian Trade Hall Council. That's all Sunday the 1st of May. Go to Trades Hall uh, at the corner of uh, uh, Ligon and uh, Victoria and you will be in the right place. It, the March itself starts at 1 and uh, there are things before and after.
2: Yes, it's very important to get along to as the, we've got to support the unions destroying the economy, just like um, Malcolm Turnbull has said, yeah. they're threatening the economy, if only.
3: Yeah, and he wants a new economic order. It's almost in place, folks. It's almost in place. But anyway, uh, May Day, uh, there's going to be special programming on 3CR as well. So uh, keep your ears tuned. You've got something else to tell them about?
2: I do. Um, It's a party, actually, a street party. Um, But it's on the 24th of April, which is tomorrow at 2 pm. And it's uh, Bendigo Street Party, which is an action, um, which is for action on housing and homelessness. So there's an incredible. number of people in Victoria who are homeless 25,000 people and there are 33,000 people who are waiting for public housing Um, but there are 80,000 empty houses and this is uh, the point that the people at Bendigo Street are making and protesting about.
3: So Bendigo Street Collingwood not Bendigo Street Richmond Bendigo Street Collingwood
0: yes and it's at 2 p.m
3: tomorrow for the street party be part of it or be square now uh, coming up oh well we'll tell them what we had on the program today. People complain if we don't.
2: Oh, we had um, Curry Peterson Smith talking about Black Lives uh, Black Lives Matter movement.
3: Yep, we then talked about Panama Papers, which was exhilarating. I'll have to say.
2: Yes, and it's only going to get more um, damning for the ruling class. Yes,
3: and uh, this is the week that was followed by uh, a chat with uh, Anthony Lowenstein about disaster capitalism. And uh, just a reminder: don't forget May the first Sunday. Trades Hall Council, one o'clock for the start of the March. And uh, coming up next, of course, is uh, Asia Pacific Currents. And we're going to go out with Phil Oaks. And this time, we will probably actually hear the whole of this song because
2: we're actually on time.
3: <laughs> we're actually on time. Goodbye, folks.
2: One of the shadiest of these is the Liberals.
4: an outspoken group on many subjects
2: <clears throat> ten degrees to the left of center in good times ten degrees to the right of center if it affects them personally
4: so here then is a lesson in safe logic
0: I cried when they shot Mad Ever tears ran
5: down my spine And I cried when they shot Mr. Kennedy,
0: as though I'd lost a father of mine. But Malcolm X got what was coming, he got what he asked for this time. So love me, love me, love me, I'm a liberal.